If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. One of the things that I love about the Bible is the diversity within the Bible. Now, there's some ways in which it's not overly diverse. I mean, it's a pretty... Um, it does tell a lot of history, and there's a lot of stories, and there's a lot of uh, different characters and people brought up, but it is focused on one general uh, geographical location. It's one group of people for the most part, and, and you get a pretty limited view. Like, if you were wanting to learn about all of world history, the Bible not be, might not be the, the greatest book for that because it's not interested in telling that story. It has a rather limited focus. However, within that focus, there is a tremendous diversity of uh, stories, of contexts, of situations, of emotions, of, of, emotions, of uh, genres, of literature, and styles of writing. You have different languages represented. You have different world powers ruling at different times. When you turn to the book of Psalms, one of the things that I, I love about having the book of Psalms in our Bible is, you know, when we think of Bible, we might think of law like law codes and lists of laws, and those appear in there from time to time. You might think of narrative, like grand stories and meta-narratives and, and minor stories that build together with other stories that end up making major stories, and, and you have all of that stuff going through the Bible. You might think of all kinds of different types of, of literature, but right in the middle of it, right in the book of Psalms, we have this rather lengthy prayer book or a song book. It's kind of like, you know, in the pew, you might have a songbook in front of you. It's like we have Israel's songbook just full of their prayers, just right in the middle of our Bibles. And as you look at these songs, you get to learn a lot about the worship of ancient Israel. And if you want to know a lot about what a people believe, if you want to know a lot about what is most important to a group of people, listen to their worship. Focus on the things that they praise God for. If you have a group of people who love and worship and praise God— and you want to learn about that group, you will find the most important, most valuable, uh, most central things to their beliefs, to their ideology, to their identity by looking at their worship. Uh, and I would think that would be hopefully largely true of us as well. You could listen to the, the words that we sing and you can find out the things that matter to us. You can listen to the things that are said and the things that are prayed for here and you'll get a pretty good idea what matters to us. If there's a topic here at this building that we've never prayed about, Odds are it's not on our hearts and minds very much. But if there's something that you hear us mention week after week after week, you might think, okay, that's kind of central to their identity. When you read through the Psalms, you find out what is central to the heart of ancient Israel and what's central to the heart of, of God and to the worship of God. And as you read through the Psalms, you're going to find diversity within the Psalms as well. Tremendous amount of diversity. You'll see some Psalms that are overwhelmingly joyful in talking about the good things that God has done. You'll see some psalms that are kind of dark. You'll see some psalms that um, perhaps I don't even feel comfortable, I probably wouldn't ever pray, uh, because they, they, they deal with the human emotion of hatred and revenge. And, and that's one of the things I think, and you'll find like everywhere in between, between joy and love and hatred and revenge and, and sorrow, you'll find this mixture of the full range of human emotion. And one of the things that I love about the Psalms is that it doesn't remove that stuff. It doesn't polish it. It doesn't uh, shape it to where you only get the good, happy things. Sometimes life is not good and happy. Sometimes life can be miserable. And if you are experiencing that, there's a Psalm for you. Um, there's a Psalm that can speak to where you are. 
Sometimes when I'm reading through the Psalms and I'm, and I'm down <laughs> and I'm not feeling very joyful, the joyful ones don't hit my ear quite right. Sometimes if I'm uh, quite joyful and I'm reading like Psalm 137 and I'm getting towards the close and I see some things that are like very hateful towards enemies, I think, oh, that's uncomfortable. Um, But one thing that even that feeling of this Psalm doesn't really work for me right now, one thing that can do is that it can remind you that you're not alone in this journey of faith, but there's a whole world of Christians who are experiencing all of these emotions. There are Christians uh, going through persecution in parts of the world who that psalm might, it might be a reminder to pray for them. It might be a reminder that the psalms are speaking not just to us as individuals, but to a whole community. So you, you can go through the psalms and you can find a tremendous amount of wisdom. You can find a tremendous amount of beauty. You can find a tremendous amount of poetry. You can find the heart and the soul of ancient Israel, and you can find what matters most to man and to God. You can find the whole range of human emotions. And sometimes those psalms, as you read through them, they give more detail and shed more light on perhaps a certain historical situation that you have the story of it in the Bible— but you might not have the, uh, the emotion of it. You know, you might, uh, you could pick up a, a book on uh, the Holocaust, and you could learn a lot of facts about the Holocaust, but then you could read the diary of Anne Frank, and you could see a personal take on some of the individual experiences that a young girl was, was going through during that time period. And it sheds more light by getting the, the personal perspective of, of someone who is, a, or, uh, or Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. You can read that and you can get some insight of someone who was actually in a concentration camp, the emotions that were going on during that time and some of the things that he was dealing with. There are times you can read a story in the Bible and you can get a lot of the facts of what's going on But then you can turn to the Psalms and you can see what an individual was actually experiencing while that story was going on. Psalm 51 is one of those uh, Psalms. It's a Psalm that deals with what was going on in the heart of David during one of the darkest moments of his life. In fact, if you read, uh, a lot of times the Psalms right before they begin, there's this little introductory note to them. Um, If you look up right before it says verse 1, I think most of your Bibles are going to have this. It's, It's actually in the ancient manuscripts also. It says, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, and then it gives you the historical setting. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So it tells you when you're reading through the books of like First and Second Kings and you get to that story, here's the psalm that you should think about. Here's the psalm that tells you what David is personally going through in his heart and in his mind as that situation unfolds. So if you don't know about David and Bathsheba, let me tell you a little story before we start uh, Psalm 51. Uh, it's not a good story. David was known as a great warrior. In fact, uh, you can read through some of the stories of David's early life, and you could see him just killing Goliath. You know, the, the mightiest warrior of the Philistines, David's able to put an end to relatively quickly. Um, David's then able to lead the army into all kinds of successful battles. Uh, he's able to have successful military battles that help him marry the king's daughter. Uh, king Saul was a king at the time. And uh, because of that, they end up singing songs about David. They end up uh, talking about how great of a war. They, were, they sing songs that say, David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul has killed his thousands. Uh, which, by the way, Saul did not like that 
song. But, uh, but you go through, and, and David ends up becoming known as someone who's a great military uh, leader. David is someone who has experienced a lot of hardship in his life, but over and over and over again, through that hardship, has remained faithful to God and has ultimately been blessed because of it. Saul wanted to kill David quite a bit. He takes a number of opportunities to try to kill David. And David uh, flees from him. David has to live as a refugee. David has to suffer because the king hates him, even though David did nothing wrong to the king. And David has the opportunity a number of times to get vengeance on the king, to kill King Saul while they're alone. He's able to go into a cave and he has the opportunity to save his own life by killing the king. And yet David doesn't do it time and time again because that is the Lord's anointed and he's not going to lift his hand against him. David cared about doing the right thing. And you see that throughout his life over and over again. But there's a tragic thing that happens when someone who has started at the bottom, the youngest of his family, a shepherd, ends up making their way to the top. There are a lot of movies that that follow the trajectory of the rise and the fall of, of someone who started off at the bottom, they made their way to the top, and then once they got there, they couldn't handle it, and they ended up falling. Um, the story of David has some similarities to that. David does make it to the top. David ends up, after Saul dies, after a civil war in the land with Ishbosheth and, and others trying to claim the throne, David eventually becomes king. He eventually is ruler of, uh, of all of ancient Israel, and things are going quite well. And it begins to go to his head. And he begins to do what kings do. And do you know what kings do? Kings get what they want. If a king wants something, he's going to figure out a way to get it. Um, in, the books of, uh, first, uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, you see David, uh, 2 Samuel, you see David as a king sending his armies out uh, to go and fight for Israel. Only David is no longer joining the army. He's staying back home, he's staying at the comfort of his palace, and he's enjoying life. Um, Instead of being the king who is there with the people, David is the king secluded from his people. He goes up on his uh, rooftop one day and he looks out at the land that he rules and the place in which he reigns, and he looks over and he's able to see on the rooftops of uh, the different houses around him. Uh, shows you that David's house is even bigger than theirs. Uh, and as David's looking at the different rooftops, he notices, uh, by the way, people use their rooftops for all kinds of different things. Uh, this isn't uh, an odd circumstance from what I understand. But he sees a woman and he sees her bathing. And he has right there at that moment an opportunity. He could close his eyes, turn around, go back inside of his house, take a nap, and just wake up and live the rest of his life, forget what he saw. Or he could become so infatuated with her that he can't take his eyes away. He ends up having lust that turns into desire, which turns into action. And that's, that's what he does. He ends up finding out who she is. And when he finds out who she is, he finds out her name is Bathsheba and finds out that she's married. She's married to a man named Uriah, who's actually one of those soldiers out fighting for David. And so he knows her husband's gone and he knows that he's the king and he can get what he wants. And you know what he wants right now? Her. And so he has his men go and get her, and they bring her to him, and then he sleeps with her. And uh, then he sends her back home, and he goes on about his day. You know, he's, he's got what he wanted. Uh, no one can stop him. He's the one who's in charge. But then a problem arises. Uh, Bathsheba's pregnant now, and 
she's pregnant and her husband's gone. And so that's the type of thing that leads to some questions in people's minds. Uh, that's the type of thing that people will start investigating. So David has to figure out some way to try to solve this issue. And so what he thinks to do is, okay, I'll have her husband come back from battle, have him uh, meet with me, then go home. I'm sure he'll enjoy time with his wife. And then he can go back out there. And uh, if all that happens, you know, maybe there's a little premature, you know, something. But, but basically that could save me. He'll think, okay, it's his. And so he has Uriah come back and meet him at the palace. And uh, then David has their, they have their meal together. He wants Uriah to go home. And Uriah says something along the lines of, how could I go home and enjoy my own bed and be with my wife and enjoy all those comforts while my men are out dying on the battlefield? No, I'm not going to do that. And he refuses. And so David has to come up with another plan. His next plan, and this is, this is if you want to get someone who has integrity to lose some integrity, this is the next step. He invites him over again and gets him drunk this time. That's a good way to get someone to, uh, to, to no longer stand on their principles. Uh, the problem is Uriah, instead of going back home, ends up falling asleep uh, at the king's palace and doesn't, doesn't make it there. And so now David is frustrated, and he doesn't know exactly what he's going to do, and he comes up with another plan. David the king, the great military warrior who fights for Israel, ends up sending a letter by the hand of Uriah back to the battlefield to the commander of the army that tells him to go into a heated battle with Uriah at the front lines and then retreat from him, leaving Uriah to be struck down and killed by the enemy. David sabotages his own mighty men, his own military leader, in order to then take Bathsheba to be his own wife to clear his name. And that's exactly what he does. Uriah is a trustworthy man. He doesn't even look at the letter. He brings it. He ends up going into the battle. He ends up being struck down. He ends up dead. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Happy ending. Uh, not exactly. So after all this happens, uh, there's a prophet in the land. His name is Nathan. And uh, one of the, the things that kings need is a voice to listen to and someone to let them know when they've overstepped their boundaries. And that's what Nathan is to David. And Nathan comes to David and he tells him about a terrible injustice that has taken place in the land where David is supposed to be king and David is supposed to be bringing about justice and righteousness and the goodness of God and, and all of that. And he hears that there was a really, really wealthy man and this really wealthy man had everything. This wealthy man had all the cattle you could ever want, all of the lambs and all of the uh, herds of, 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 of everything. And he had a huge house and he had all he could ever eat. And I mean, he, this guy had everything. And there was also someone in the land who had absolutely nothing. He was poor, he was destitute, he struggled to eat, but he had one possession in his life that he loved and it was a little ewe lamb and he loved and cared for that lamb he treated that lamb like a child the lamb slept in his own bed and ate from his own food like table and like it was it was the only thing he cared for it was the only thing that he had and a, a, a visitor comes to this uh this town and he's gonna stay with the rich man and the rich man wants to have a meal and offer sacrifice for him and he looks at his thousands upon thousands of his herd and of the heads of cattle and all that. And he thinks, ah, I don't want to waste anything of mine. So he looks out and he sees that poor man. He sees the ewe lamb. He says, I'll just take that. And he takes the lamb and he kills the lamb. And he sacrifices it and he offers it and they have their meal together. And that poor destitute man is left with nothing. And when David hears this, he is 
furious that someone would do that. And he said, that man deserves to die. He needs to restore fourfold what he took from him. And at that moment, Nathan then looks at David and says, you are that man. You're the one who has done this. You're the one I'm talking about right now. You had everything. You became king. You were wealthy. You had wives, plural, already. And yet you looked at what this man had. You looked at Bathsheba. You looked at Uriah, who was, I mean, he was, he's not a king. He, this is the one, he cherished his wife more than anything else. And you took her for yourself and you sent him out to go die. You deserve to die. You deserve to restore fourfold. And all of a sudden at that moment, almost like a ton of bricks, it seems like David came to realize how lost he had become. By the way, sin has a way of doing that. Sin has a way from turning lust on a rooftop into places you never, ever thought it would go. He ended up having an affair. He ended up lying. He ended up deceiving a nation. He ended up getting someone drunk. He ended up having someone killed. All of this in order to clear his name. And it was just one step after the next step after the next step. Because once you open that door, it's hard to close it and it's never clean. And so when David recognizes this about himself, you do see that he ends up uh, admitting to his own sins. He ends up uh, losing that child. Uh, and basically his family life is, is tumultuous from this point forward as you continue to read about his reign. But in all of that, you see that David, he's never quite the same again. He does make the change, at least uh, he confesses his sin and he is forgiven of his sin. But what you get in Psalm 51 is David pouring out his heart about what was going on between him and God after recognizing uh, his sin, after recognizing what God had done um, and, and what he had done, rather, uh, to God. And he calls out upon the graciousness and the compassion and the mercy and the loving kindness and the steadfast love of God to be his source of forgiveness, his source of renewal, his source of change in life. And I don't know exactly, uh, if you read this psalm, what you're going to think about if you're considering your own life. Uh, I don't know what sins everyone is engaged in. Uh, I don't know um, if you've hit rock bottom or if you're hurtling towards there. But I think wherever you find yourself, if you can look into your life and read this psalm, you might be able to find reason to call out upon the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness of God, reason to ask him for a renewal in your heart and in your life, and to specify the changes that you will make in your life uh, with respect to him. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Psalm 51. We won't make a lot of comments as we go through. I'll make a couple probably. But think about the words and think about how you as a follower of Jesus, and as a flawed follower of Jesus, and as a sinful follower of Jesus, could consider these words as applicable to your own life and to your own situation. What changes do you need to make? And where do you need the grace and mercy of God in your life? Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. You know, that, even that phrase right there, my sin is ever before me. Even when forgiven by God, we can run the risk of never, ever letting the sin that we have committed go. 
but it becoming something that, that we define as part of ourselves, becoming a, an identity that we see ourselves in. Guilt can be used in a couple of ways. One, you could be actually guilty, like guilt as decreed by God, you are guilty. But there's also the way that guilt can be, even after you've been declared innocent by God, you've been forgiven and cleansed, you feel guilty. And that's where you walk around seeing your sin ever before you. And your sin is something that you can't ever have removed from yourself. And that's part of this, this prayer in this psalm also, is David's praying to God for complete renewal and, and removal of this sin so that he can experience life again uh, and not only see his failures ever present before him. Uh, verse 4 Against you, you only have I sinned and done this great wickedness in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make known wisdom. When you notice verse 7, there's going to be a change in his shift. He's basically just been saying, I need your steadfast love. I need your compassion. I need your grace. I am a sinful person whose sin is always before him. I've always been a sinner. I'll always be a wretched sinner. And I need you to do something for me. And what he's going to ask God to do in verse 7 is you're going to see just this series of requests or petitions. Asking God to do one thing after another thing after another thing after another thing. And I think if you find yourself in need of the grace of God, this is probably a pretty good list to ask God for. God's willing to grant requests like this. Uh, read it with me in verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Hyssop, by the way, is a plant that, uh, if you look at the way that it's used in other places in the Bible, it's the plant that's used that you dip in the blood, and during the Passover, uh, the children of Israel will put the blood on their doorpost. It's like that was used as a cleansing agent so that their house could avoid the destruction that was coming towards Egypt. Uh, it's often used in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers for the priests for different cleansing rituals, especially for those like who've had leprosy or something before they're welcomed back into the community. Uh, you see that hyssop is used as a cleansing agent. What he's saying is, save me from the destruction. Let me be back in the community and cleanse me as you would cleanse a leper or as you would cleanse somebody else so that I can be one again. Uh, verse uh, 7 continues, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. I don't think he's heard much joy and gladness. By the way, if you want something to steal your joy and gladness, live a life where you're constantly ashamed of yourself. Live a life defined by guilt and sin and you'll find that it's a lot harder to actually have peace and joy in your life. But the life of someone who knows that they are in right standing with God, there's a peace with that. A peace that Paul describes can pass all understanding so that even in prison, he can find peace with God. He says in verse, four, uh, verse uh, 8, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your presence from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, and do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Notice the, the, trans, the, the, the uh, progression there in verse 9. It says, hide your face or your presence from my sins, but then at the end of, uh, or at the beginning of verse 11, but don't cast me away from your presence. Like, take your presence from my sin, but don't take me away from your presence. The only way to do that is to take my sin away from me and to make me a new person, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
I'm going to need that if transformation is ever going to happen. Create in me a clean heart. Let me be clean and new again. Uh, Verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then notice from this point forward, he launches into what he'll do in response to the goodness and the grace of God. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. It gives you something to talk about. Because you're going to find that you're not alone in this sin and that there are others out there who are experiencing shame and regret and guilt and sin. And just as David was able to receive the forgiveness of God, you have a message of hope for them as well. So God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Forgive me and cleanse me, and I can go tell others about this goodness. Uh, Verse 4, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. The grace of God is motivation for worship. He says, then I'll be able to sing praise to you and and declare with my lips how good you are. Verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifices. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David's looking at the law and he's looking at his life and he's looking at what he could do and he realizes that no sacrifice, no going to the temple and offering an animal will, will make this right. The law actually doesn't have a sacrifice for adultery. There's a different punishment for adultery. Um, he knows that there's nothing he can offer that will settle this score. But he can offer one thing. He can offer a broken and a contrite heart. And you know what? You can't offer God money. You can't offer him enough animals. You can't offer him perfection, but you can offer him that. And he's pleased and he's gracious and he's forgiving. So wherever you find yourself this morning, offer God that. If you're looking at your life and there are secrets that you don't want anyone else to know about, God knows about them. You can make changes and you can offer him that. You can offer him a broken and contrite heart. You can offer him repentance and change. You can beg his mercy, and we serve a merciful, loving, and good, forgiving, compassionate, and gracious God. You can trust in his mercy. The guilt that you feel can be remedied by the innocence that God pronounces. Trust in that and live in that. And if there's anyone here who has that need, uh, the need of repentance or prayer, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row or you can meet with one of our elders in the back while we stand and as we sing.